Royals and Ghouls. Lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, this is the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shan, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. Let's go! It's the Boo Crew Podcast, episode number 15. You want to scream. But you can't. Terror grips every nerve in your body. We are joined by effects artist, sculptor, and creature designer Patrick McGee of McGee Effects. If you happen to be a Monster Palooza here in LA a few weeks ago, which is just the coolest annual monster makeup and horror effects convention, him and his team had the gigantic Beetlejuice snake, the life size Henrietta from Evil Dead, the incredible Howling statue. We talk about his personal story and the path to his debut feature length horror flick that he's not only worked on the effects for, but also co wrote and directed. The next level Bigfoot film, Primal. Rage. You haven't seen anything like this before. In the spirit of McGee's genius practical effects work, the Boo Crew heads to the screaming room for a little dead time story we like to call practically terrifying. <laughs> it's time for this a boogeyman to boogie. Hey there, it's Patrick McGee, and you're listening to the Boo Crew. The Boo Crew dusts a fright flick off the shelf for. Horror Homework. We're celebrating the art of practical effects and Fright Flicks in this round of Horror Homework. What do you guys love about practical effects? I love how authentic I would imagine something to be. I feel like computers can't capture the realness and just it's an art. I remember seeing Dawn of the Dead with the genius practical effects of the master Tom Savini. That was the first film I experienced where I physically felt compelled to vomit. I was so disgusted by what I saw. It was so real. I mean, it looks so real. Yeah, that left a scar on me, man. That was it's just insane. That's the thing I always liked about it is how did they do that? Like with CG, you don't get the how do they do that? You know how they did it. Computers. Right. Practical effects, there's a lot of, you know, especially all that the early 80s stuff as the art form was growing yeah. and, and evolving yeah. and people were trying to top one another. So much creativity. Yeah. There's, you know, limited only by their imagination. On that note, we're going through movies that celebrate the art of practical effects. What did people see? So the film that Austin and I watched was the classic John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh, yes. Twelve men have just discovered something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live. Inside. The Thing was released in 1982. It was released by Universal. And it was John Carpenter's first studio film. Some people think that it was, or it was a remake off of the 1951 version called The Thing from Another World, but it wasn't. Both films were based off of a 1938 novella called Who Goes There? Oh, Oh. I didn't know that. The Thing from Another World appears on the TV in Halloween. Yes, that's right. Oh, yeah. So he's clearly a fan. He said that it's not a remake. He went back to the original. And also uh, before him, Toby Hooper was attached to the project until that fell apart. Is there one particular scene or effect that just really stuck with you? The whole thing is really amazing. It's the the guy who did all the effects. His name is Rob Boutine. Uh, he was 23 at the time. He worked himself into exhaustion. He was hospitalized afterwards for exhaustion. Oh he worked 57 <laughs> seven-day weeks. And his backstory is really interesting. He actually apprenticed with Rick Baker. When he was oh, wow. 14, he sent Rick Baker some sketches of his and Rick Baker started a correspondence, and then he started apprenticing with him. He worked on the Fury. He actually worked on the Star Wars Cantina makeup effects for uh, the Star Wars Cantina scene, uncredited. And then he met John Carpenter on The Fog. He worked on The Fog. And then this project came around. On this film, he had a 
crew of 35 people that he oversaw. For this movie, he didn't want the thing of the thing to look the same in any different scene, which obviously creates a lot of work. Yeah, yeah seriously. Yeah, because it takes many different forms. Yeah, because yeah. you never know what it is, which is fun. Yeah, yeah. Until, it, until it's activated. The right. one scene that really stood out to me, there's a, so the, there's a, for people who haven't seen it, the film takes place in Antarctica, and it opens with a dog running through this barren, snowy wasteland and a helicopter chasing after it, firing a gun and trying to shoot the dog, and you don't know why. And so the dog shows up at this base of a bunch of Americans. The other people are Norwegian and the helicopter says Norsk on the side. And they, one of them dies when the helicopter explodes and the other one is shot because he's shooting at people and they don't know why. And suddenly we're just stuck with these people and we don't know what's going on. And eventually the creature takes the shape of things. So it could be anyone or any living thing. Someone described it as a whodunit who keeps doing it. so they never know who is the evil and they're trying to you know suss it all out and there's this one scene where this one character dies and they get him up on the table and they try to uh Mm -hmm. use a defibrillator on him so they zap him with the defibrillator (laughs) man yeah Uh, one time nothing happens and the guy goes down to do it again and the guy's chest cavity opens up as a Ooh. giant mouth yeah. with sharp teeth, so the cool. arms go down <laughs> into the cavity. It closes. The arms get ripped off. Oh, my God. And that's the beginning of this scene. This scene just gets yeah. bigger and grosser and yeah. just amazing. Weird. Roger Ebert, in his review, recommended that people uh, bring uh, barf bags when they come to see this film. Nice. Yeah. 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 To go, <laughs> to go back to, to Trevor's uh, early experiences. <laughs> That means um, it's a winner. <laughs> it's classic. So the film tanked when it came out. Part of the reason was that E.T. came out right before it. So there's a happy alien movie. So no one wanted an evil alien movie, it seemed. But obviously has since gone on to become a uh, cult classic. As a bonus, I watched The Thing from 2011. We started watching that and didn't get very far. (laughs) (laughs) I was lucky enough and unfortunate enough to experience The Thing for the first time only like two years ago. Oh, wow. It was one of these movies I just never ended up seeing. I don't know why. And then one night I sat there and I watched The Thing and... God, it was right. so amazing and to experience it for the first time. I mean, oh, yeah. the my gosh. The effects hold yeah. up so well. Yeah, it's yeah. scarier than most things that I've seen in the past, you know, 20 years, yeah, easily, yeah. you know? Then I went and, oh, I, I want to see the new thing. And remember, you're just hit with the CGI special effects right off the top, and yeah. the practical effects were such a part of why the original thing was so great right. yeah. that it just made us go, you know, Well, here's off, a really but. interesting thing. So it's not a remake, nor is it a remake of The Thing from Another World, it's actually a prequel to the thing. So that's the first problem is that the <laughs> right. title's super confusing yeah. and doesn't bode well for the film itself. It's the story that leads you to those Norwegian people in the helicopter chasing the dog at the beginning of 1982's The Thing. Oh, I see. And even on that sense, I don't think it's done very well, but that's a, that's a conversation for another podcast. <laughs> on the subject of practical effects, so there's a company that did the practical effects that movie was all done with practical effects. The company's called Amalgamated Dynamics Studio, ADI. Yeah, um, they've done stuff on the aliens. And, yeah, and Tom all Woodruff that. Jr. and yeah. um, Alec Gillis. Incredible. Yeah. So they did all the practical effects. The studio got cold feet and got a digital company to come in and lay over digital effects <gasps> on top of the practical oh, effects. No. <laughs> so was it no. because it looked too real, maybe? And it was I, audience no. was ready to experience that again, or what? I think... I think they got some bad reviews that, or not bad reviews, but notes in a test screening that they didn't know how to process because studios 
historically don't take notes and test screenings very well. They didn't know whether or not it worked. And so they just got like a couple bad uh, responses and they, they got cold feet and just said, well, let's just do it digitally. It'll look better. And it doesn't. Right. It not only does it not look better, it looks terrible. It takes you out of the film instantly. Yeah. And it's, so it becomes it a really interesting example of practical versus digital because you can see since it's come out, uh, the company has um, put their original effects online. You can see the practical effects that they oh, were developing. Wow. And there's a couple things where, at first, you know, there's a couple things you can see like, oh, well, I don't know how they would do that practically. And then they, but they did. There's one where the guy's heads kind of splits open and they had built a practical body for it. And a, a, a prosthetic. So, the, so it's an actor standing up and then the thing coming apart and oh, like wow. they, they put a lot of work into it and it was all taken away. Uh, and see that to quote you is movie magic, right? It's magic. It's it a magic is. trick yeah. making that work. Absolutely. Yeah. It is nothing shy of a magic trick, and the computer-generated stuff is not magic. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, for one of my favorite practical effects, I mean, the film, The Thing, the uh, 1982 version, which there's so much like jam-packed creature effects, but like one of my favorite practical effects is actually the opening title, yes. which is also was done also in the 1951 version as well, is that kind of like title the thing where it kind of like looks like the smoke comes through the letters right so that was all done practically and how do they do that well is that um the uh, special effects optical special effects supervisor peter curran he actually had a fish tank and he filled it with smoke and he had a animation sheet or Cell. Cell. Animation cell that had the thing on it. And so he taped that onto the fish tank. He put it like a black paper, a plastic bag, a trash bag onto the back. And then he burned the trash bag. Before he burned the trash bag, he put a light where the animation cell was taped to so that the light would go through the animation cell. And so by burning that and then the light coming through and the smoke, you get that effect of the thing in the letters. Oh, wow. That is insane. Wow. Right? right? Like, I never would have thought... That the practical effects would transcend to fucking titles. I know. Yeah. But That's it's classic. amazing. They you put watch so it, much work so into great. that. And oh that's another God. thing. The 2011 the thing, the titles are all digital and it doesn't have that cool ass font. Mm. If you're going to take anything from 1982 <laughs> the thing, <laughs> the font. Download the font. <laughs> <laughs> it's so amazing. Yeah. And then but so they do the same effect. But digitally, and it has zero magic to it. Yeah. It has no charm. Like, that's the other thing I love about practical effects, is that there's a charm to it. There's, you know, you just, it feels, you know, it's like you were saying, Lauren, it just, you feel the thing there. It's subconscious, right? You just, you mentally pick up on it without knowing, you know, that it's done practically. Right. You just mentally, you're gravitated to it. I don't know if it's human nature or what it is, an instinctual thing. Right. But there's something about that stuff that just. I think part of it is the light. Hits it like light hits a real thing. Yeah. The, you know, gravity, mm -hmm. physics yeah. operate the way physics are supposed to operate. For people to suspend their disbelief, you need to give them enough for them to actually believe in. And then they'll they'll go that extra mile. I call John Carpenter's The Thing a perfect horror movie. And it only has one of the best uh, tension and scenes, the blood test scene. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was creepy. <laughs> brilliant. Yep. And then the ending. What yeah. a great ending. Yeah. yeah. All right, Leo, you're up, man. My pick is from 2013, Evil Dead. You're all going to die tonight. 
I read a passage from that book. I released something evil. So I'm not a big fan of uh, remakes because typically they're just not that great. This one I really loved. I saw this in the theaters, directed by Fede Alvarez. And if you don't know the name, he also directed Don't Breathe. He made a tiny little movie on YouTube in 2009 called Ataque de Panico in his home country of Uruguay. He shot this on either Hi8 or a mini DV and using his computer, $300 worth of computer effects, whatever. A UFO alien home invasion on his hometown. He shot this and it looks so cool. The effects he put together on his computer that it caught the attention of everybody here. So Sam Raimi caught wind of it, and it's like, we got to back the truck up, give the guy money, and just get him over here to make movies. And sure enough, they did. His first American movie, studio film, was Evil Dead. Wow. Wow. This film is fantastic. If you haven't seen it, go see it. It's not just your average remake. It's a reimagining of the original story, and it does it very well. It feels familiar. You know, you have uh, these five young adults going into the woods, into a cabin, come across a book of the dead, and they unwillingly summon demons that live in the woods. It sounds familiar, sure. But there's a plot point as to why they go into the woods and why they are there, which I thought was really effective. And I thought it worked really well for the story. The movie stars uh, Jane Levy and um, Shiloh Fernandez. This movie is loaded with practical effects and some of the best I've ever seen. It's blood, guts, mutilation, dismemberment, and more. <laughs> it's yeah. stupid, man. It is done so well, though. So well. I mean, a lot of the stuff is the actors, the actual actors in makeup wearing the prosthetics that are being cut off them. I didn't even think that was true until I saw the behind the scenes making of. God, it was done so well. I like that one, too. I, I was a big fan of it when yeah. it came out. And we we did the maze, right, at Universal? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah they did a maze based on the... I, I, you know, I hesitate to call it a remake, right? It's like another chapter in the Evil Dead yeah. universe, right? Yeah, actually, they've. if you watch the movie carefully... It's a side story. It's like a. It's not a reimagined. It's almost right. Like a it takes sequel. place in the in the universe. I right, guess it's right. In the universe definitely. Yeah. Man, talk about these effects. There's only one shot in the whole movie that's not practical. Really, and that involves fire. Yeah, yeah. and some of the best stuff you'll see, man. I mean, I I was just cringing the whole time. I'm like, and I, I've seen so much blood and guts in the hospital, and you know, and stuff. But seeing this on, I'm like, why is this movie bothering me? Like, it really got to me. But in, in a fun way, in a fun horror way. Like when you leave, you just feel like, oh, you feel like this un easy feeling in your stomach you know just to show you he used 70,000 gallons of blood in this movie oh, <laughs> and in wow. one in one scene alone 50,000 gallons Whoa. of blood wow. in one scene when you see that scene you'll know exactly what that scene is <laughs> <laughs> but to, to compare it the original only used 300 gallons of wow blood. really yeah he went all out and they had to shoot this movie in order because the more blood involved, the easier it was to just throw stuff on the walls. The blood <laughs> <is dead>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they didn't have to clean it up and reshoot. And, you know. It's practical. <laughs> it's practical. <laughs> Makes sense. But yeah, due, due to its violence and, and uh, extreme nature, it was banned in, in the Ukraine. So in some other possible countries as well. I hear you're banned in the Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm banned in Serbia. <laughs> it's a well done movie. That whole effects team did a remarkable job with everything in that movie, man. It, it really sold it. If you haven't seen it, go in blindly. Don't even like look into it. Just watch it and you appreciate for what, what these people, you know, these hardworking effects people did with it. 
It's really fantastic. He did Don't Breathe. There's rumors of Don't Breathe 2 coming out. But this year, uh, Ferry Alvarez has uh, the sequel to The Girl with the, oh. yeah, the, girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yeah. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, I think it's called uh, The Girl in the Spider's Web, I think it's mm-hmm. called. Yeah, it's supposed to be coming out this year. He's, he's a, he has a fantastic vision. Definitely see this movie, Evil Dead. The movie we saw and can now never unsee. <laughs> oh, no. Not the Serbian film. No. <laughs> Human centipede. No. <laughs> it's Terrifier. Oh. oh yes. We are not safe here. This guy is armed and he's a total maniac. What the hell is wrong with you? What? Did you think he was going to hack me up into little pieces or something? Written and directed by Damien Leone, debuted at the Telluride Horror Show Film Festival in 2016, then it was picked up by Dread Central Pictures, released March 15th, 2018 in select theaters, available on Blu-ray, DVD, VOD, and iTunes. Everyone is talking about this movie right now, and with good reason. A maniac clown (laughs) stalks people on Halloween night. That's all you need to know. Seriously, guys, he's hands down one of the creepiest horror icons and I say icons because I do put him up there with Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers, Pinhead already, which is crazy to say because we just watched the movie, you know, from hearing the buzz about it, didn't know what to expect to put it on and was just seriously blown away by this. This character has staying power. What's the character's name? Art. Art. Art the Clown. <laughs> uh, you don't just see this movie. You really experience it. It seemed like it just fell out from the sky, <laughs> right? Yeah, that yeah. was terrifying <laughs> by it. I don't think it fell out of the sky. It crawled out of the pits of hell. Oh my God. <laughs> it is wow. insane. It makes kind of Pennywise seem not so scary. Seriously, that wow. is true. The clown is masterfully played by this actor, David Howard Thornton, who's mostly actually known for stage work and voiceover. He's voiced over 200 different characters. This guy's toured with Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the musical. He played the Joker in the Nightwing Escalation web series. He has a strong background in comedy and clowning. Grew up enamored with silent film performers like Chaplin. Studies physical actors like Doug Jones and Jim Carrey. He brings such a terrifying intensity to this role. He's got an angular face, blacked out teeth. It reminded me of the original Nightmare on Elm Street, the level of terror and the way it makes you feel. Wow. And the way you don't know what to expect and how far they take it and how far Art the Clown goes. You don't feel safe watching it because nothing is (laughs) off the table. The director, he comes from a special effects background, so he also not only wrote and directed does the effects oh wow he said if you can convince someone on set into believing it's real you'll definitely convince the audience he's a fan of cgi when it's done right but doesn't like it when it's done poorly or used inappropriately kind of what we've been talking about he brought up disney's live action beauty and the beast and he said that in the test screenings for the makeup it looks stunning and then they went and used cgi and it kind of ruin the whole thing so he also is a huge fan of Guillermo del Toro's like his use of CGI when it's needed but practical effects when it's not needed and he thinks there's a certain harmony between what Guillermo del Toro does what scared me the most is art you don't know much about him there's not much backstory it's just kind of like why is he doing all this Damien said that He didn't want to give too much into what the character was because then it doesn't make it as creepy. 
And there's been talks about a sequel. He already knows where the next movie with Art, where it's going to go, which I think is really cool. Damien set out to make Art as violent as possible because he knew the effects would be one of the strong points since he knew how to do a lot with a very small budget. Practical effects are his first love, saying you cannot top a practical effect when it's done brilliantly because it's real. So he went all out. Huge Tom Savini fan. Grew up watching the making of Thriller. So this is the kind of movie that you're going to get when you walk into it. This is not the first time Damien has visited this character of Art the Clown. The first time he appeared was in his short film The Ninth Circle. Then the 20 minute Terrifier short, which you can see on YouTube 2011-2012. And then in his anthology film All Hallows Eve, released in 2013. Art was played by Mike Gianelli in these earlier incarnations, but was replaced by David in the feature film, since the original actor had other commitments. So if you haven't seen it, You cannot miss it. I give it my utmost highest recommendation. The effects were so crazy that when we were watching it, I had to say stop. Like we need to just take like a two day break. I just need my mind to just relax and like realize that these aren't real. A little bit hard to watch. It's disturbing and vicious. The art character does not hold back. And the fact that he doesn't speak and it's all done through facial movements and body movements I give tribute to that actor who's playing that role because it is just the scariest thing you've ever seen. It's scary that you you just know he doesn't care. Like he just he can do whatever the hell he wants and he does. (laughs) (laughs) You cannot miss this movie. Then look up the Terrifier short, go see All Hallows Eve, and check out Damien's other feature he wrote and directed Frankenstein versus the Mummy in twenty fifteen, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing it now. (laughs) The Boo Crew Podcast. Creature lives in these woods where the legend of Sasquatch comes from. We're talking about Bigfoot. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy Studio is a brilliant and gifted FX artist whose credits include 2002 Spider-Man, Alien vs. Predator, Jurassic Park 3, Men in Black 3, Zombie Strippers, Dark Ride. He makes commission works for high-end collectors as well. Designs and creates the monsters inside your favorite mazes at Universal Halloween Horror Nights, Universal's Grinchmas. When you see their booth at any monster and effects convention, that's the one everyone's always gathered around. And just simply blown away. He's always kicking ass and taking names, and he's got a new movie that he's directed, produced, co-wrote, and created the creatures and effects for with his team. It's called Primal Rage. It debuted during a one-day event February 27th with Fathom and Blue Fox Entertainment, Fright Fest in the UK March 2nd. And if you miss those screenings, you're in for a real treat May 1st when you can catch this thing on VOD. We are absolutely honored to welcome Pat McGee. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Dude, thank you so much for being here. What is your earliest memory of getting into this whole horror thing? Very easy. I was seven years old, and I, I believe it was a Friday or Saturday night, and HBO was the big deal in these early 80s, and American World from London was coming on. I think it was yep. the premiere... Nice. I think it's a Saturday night and my parents <laughs> sat me down in front of the TV, not knowing really what, what it was about. And, uh, you know, blown away as pretty much everybody at that time with the special effects. And then shortly after that, Thriller came out and the making of Thriller, which kind of connected all the dots with the behind the scenes and showing how all the monsters are made. And that was just blows a seven, eight 
year old away to where you can really say you know you're 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 always told by your parents you know oh the monsters aren't real they're fake and it's like oh, <laughs> that thing looks damn real <laughs> and so a parent can only explain so well especially you know in the in the 80s there so with thriller you know if just like for so many special effects people in my in my age bracket you know with thriller it's like you could really just see it happening and it's like ah okay and and the visuals all connected and I was hooked ever since then. The making of was on MTV. It was again, it was like an event. It was like Friday night at eight, the making of Thriller. Yeah. And yeah. You, all my friends, we all got together and watched it. You had Same to thing. plan your schedule. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Back in the day. I, I, I do remember I were at a Halloween function and it could have been, already had been out for a year, but I didn't, we didn't have a v, VCR, but somebody had it and it was on loop. So I think I sat there for four hours and watched it the four or five times it played just oh, wow. as a young guy, just. I'm just going to sit here and watch it. So I was obsessed and <laughs> so the rest is history. Did you start making stuff uh, on your own right kind of after you saw that? Drawing monsters and then, yeah, making stuff out of cardboard and putty, flour and salt and Play-Doh. And then you'd get a little latex and just kind of progress from there. That era <clears throat> of special effects, especially in horror movies, was at an all-time high. I mean, everything was like practical effects. What other movies did you start getting into around that age where you were just like, I need more. I'm feeding the machine. Well, we, you know, you had Gremlins, Ghostbusters. Another really big pinnacle was uh, Aliens. Oh, yeah. Summer yeah. 86, Aliens came out. And that was just, you know, the, the story itself just goes so big and bold and quick. And that was a, a big eye-opening experience. And then the next summer after that was Predator. The combination of those three really sealed the deal. And then good old uh, Tom Savini with his like gore effects. But he had his book, Grand Illusions, which really showed the connection just like Thriller. But, you know, get like the instruction manual for kind of how each effect was done. So I got that for Christmas and I, I was always a poor reader. And I, I remember getting that and I was like, I got to be a good reader. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read the hell out of that book. And that was the only thing I did read. And I, I've gone through so many copies. So it was like just, you know, the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're the the pinnacle of monsters and effect. I mean, so, and so many great movies too. At some point, were you making independent features? Were you doing statues for your friends or for yourself, or doing any makeup effects and plays or anything like that to kind of hone your craft? Yeah, it's funny. Well, I'm six eight, as you guys have seen, so I'm tall. <laughs> yeah. So I was I played a lot of basketball. Yeah, nice. And I always did this as a hobby on the side, and I kind of built my own kind of small portfolio. But I prioritized athletics at that time, and. Uh, I actually got a scholarship to go to play basketball. And after two years of college going to get academics and playing basketball, I realized, you know, my heart is in this hobby of mine. So I kind of made that big, bold leap of bailing out of school and, and pursuing this as a career. Having it as a hobby, I mean, I made up my my co-basketball players and we do gouged out eyes and do all the pranks on my coach. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of had this kind of Jekyll and Hyde. I hear I'm this six foot eight kind of athletic tall sports guy but then i had this box of makeup and tricks you know and it was very unexpected from the visual standpoint so people didn't really see it come from me so it was always kind of a hidden hobby almost whenever i could in school without a doubt i think i, I got through high school by doing just arts and crafts that, that was my way to, to get a passing grade or get right, good grades right. i <laughs> excelled at posters and models and all that stuff you know my visuals were very uh on the high end where the academics <laughs> were but uh, it was just a hobby that really grew and grew and then you kind of realize 
wait a minute, you know, this is what I, I really should dedicate my time to. Where were you living at the time? I moved around a lot through my dad's work. So I, I had lived in Singapore. I was born in Canada. Oh, I lived wow. in Indiana. I went Canada to some right high school. Uh, <laughs> I was born in Winnipeg. Wow. The I, coldest. Yeah, literally. Yeah. You can't Ooh. get colder in Winnipeg. <laughs> and I remember I lived in BC quite mm-hmm. a bit. So mm-hmm. that's where I remember seeing a lot of these movies. And then I went to high school in Arizona. So I ended up choosing college in California. So it just gave me a little closer to where. <laughs> <laughs> then at that point, what was your professional break? Was it going to an effects school or did you just launch right into your own company right then? How did that work? I guess my professional big break with my basic portfolio of blood and guts and some masks and basic pieces, stuff that they would teach at a school, I was able to get a job with Screaming Mad George. Wow! Who, if you're not familiar with, his big claim to fame was the cockroach sequence in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. He's a very surrealistic visual artist. He co-directed The Giver. Before he had his own shop, he worked for Boss Films and worked on Poltergeist 2, Big Trouble Little China. That was my first in, sweeping the floor, cleaning up, and doing task jobs, and then learned a ton in the first few months to where you get the ball rolling from there. When did you create the company that we know now as McGee Effects? Early on, I realized having talked to a lot of people, I, you're self-employed anyway. And so the jobs only, you know, they come and go. So I, I'd work on and off for him. You know, I, I'd get three months here and then take a break depending on the work. So you got to fill your downtime with other work. So I was constantly always trying to hustle and, and get other work. So right away, I went uh, into the Halloween world, which was a guarantee for a couple months work. And I started getting into the Halloween side of things, which was a no brainer. And it's like consistent work. And of course, you know, Halloween comes every year. So I could count on that at least. So I kind of started my own company by doing Halloween props and Halloween makeup. And and I kind of, you know, met people that could help me do makeup. I started working at some big Halloween stores and I would book appointments to do makeup jobs. And next, you know, you know, a couple Saturdays or weekends before Halloween, I'd have 30 people to make up for parties. <laughs> so, you know, you know, the Halloween industry is so big and uh, I had to hire a crew. And so like the business on my own just kind of happened. And then, you know, just like anything, it just got bigger and bigger. And I started making, you know, small props. It was like head and then a half body. And the next thing I'm making bodies and I got all these bodies. I'm making them out of my garage. And, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> and it just became more and more. And then, you know, just as you tr- trudge through it all, you know, you meet somebody, hey, I'm doing a, a small movie. And I got to, you know, be the head guy on a small independent movie. And that got me like the next movie and another movie. And and then, I, you know, went back and forth and still work for other people, too. So that's when I worked for Stan Winston on Jurassic Park 3 and AI. And then I had since gone on and I worked for Rick Baker on Men in Black 3. So oh, cool. Ah, it's so amazing, man. As far as the Halloween stuff goes, I mean, is this a, we, something we talk about all the time? Halloween's getting pushed earlier and earlier and extended later and later that it's actually taking starting to take up most of the year now, right? It's going to surpass, I think, Christmas as the biggest holiday. I agree. <laughs> I agree in the past, in the, I'd argue in the past five years that it's definitely happened. Prep for something like that's become as massive as Universal Halloween Horror Nights. June, July, I would imagine, as far as their maze creation. And oh, then- much earlier. You know, wow. Horror Nights has grown so big. They're prepping in November for the next year. Wow. So wow. when they finish their the build and, and they get it done, it's like, all right, well, we already got our year. And they're developing their ideas. So I, I remember I had a meeting with them 
just this last December. And I was like, which was great. But I was like, oh, they already know what they want to do. It's like, because it takes that long. Especially, yeah. you know, the volume of work is just so much. So it's it's almost, a t- you know, 12 months. Exactly. Job. What do you think is the reason that that has kind of happened? Specifically, I think for Horror Nights, but I, I guess you would say any Halloween event is it's live. It's not a film. It's not TV. It's not anything that's processed. It's a. Uh, it's the in-your-face. It's the carnival kind of atmosphere. And you know, carnivals have gone away and all that kind of thing. Circuses to a certain degree. It's kind of that mentality, I think, where people they act a little more wild. People get to dress up and play something else. But then, as a participant, as a guest, you get to experience that. And I think there's just that craving and yearning to experience that live interaction especially now more than ever with video games and computers and you know everything with that technology is doing there's still that kind of human connection and then obviously with halloween i think the dark and the macabre and i mean you know everyone has a fascination with that it's like halloween almost makes it acceptable or normal as well has there been a project that you've worked on in one of the mazes that has been your all-time favorite well, absolutely. The best thing ever was being a fan of American Werewolf in London yeah. and having that be my, you know, since seven, I would bug the creative guys, John Murdy and Chris Williams. And I was like, we got to do this. We got to do this movie. No, nah, it's an old, you know, it's an old <laughs> movie and nobody knows. And, and I get it. And finally it came about to where we're contemplating doing uh, American Werewolf London. So man, oh, that was a dream come true. So we got to recreate American Werewolf London as a maze, you know, kind of come full circle. And man, it was just fantastic because the opening night you had Rick Baker showed up and John Lannis and David Naughton. Wow, so that's nice. right. And it's like, here I was this seven-year-old kid in Canada seeing this movie and then it's like wow here i am i get to you know work i worked specifically on the werewolf wolf puppets yeah and these guys are here to check it out it it was amazing oh that is insane (laughs) what did it feel like when those guys come and look at your work well it's nerve-wracking first of all (laughs) you know because you're copying what they created right but i also think you know, it's funny for them as well, especially with uh, David Naughton. It's just surreal, I think, for everybody, for them to go through. And then how would they know 30 something years later, you're going to go to Universal Studios and see a maze based on this movie you did and then see people playing yourself kind of thing. It's just surreal. You're in a dream world for sure. So they're there and then you're walking the sounds, just the sounds again, yeah. like that, just with the mazes specifically, it's, it's just that visual and the audio and the environment and being there live and not watching, you know, a film, all your senses get overloaded. So it's just, it's very surreal and dreamlike. I can, I can imagine the, uh, the soft spoken Rick Baker walking by. Hey, my Patrick, the hair's not long enough. <laughs> well, this is, this is what's funny is we went through, <laughs> we went, <laughs> we went through and I told all the, you know, the performers and the guys on the puppets, Hey, so the, the guys that made this stuff are about to come through. Don't screw it up. And it's opening night, so nobody was rehearsed very well. Oh, yeah. So go figure. They go through, and I think one of the third wolves, one of the guy got overzealous and cranked the wolf, and I think it, something disconnected, and the thing shot off its base. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I didn't know this. So Rick comes out, the first thing he says, hey, just so you know, wolf number three just fell off, and some guy just broke. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> 
So <laughs> it was overwhelming. But man, uh, you know, just a night to remember. Wow. Is there any other mazes that you think should be made that you haven't seen that you think would just well, turn out awesome? What's great is since that maze did very, very well, they've kind of every year since kind of dedicated a kind of retro movie yeah. Yeah. to fill that. So we got to do The Exorcist, which yeah. was on my yeah, list. that was so good. And yeah. they weren't sure if they were going to pull that off. So we got to do that, which was like, okay, check that off the list, which was great. They did The Shining that was uh, really last fun year. too. I like and again, that one. Yeah, for me and for anybody, it's just the you know you're hearing things from the movies, and then the, you know it's just you're there. You're like yeah. you're in these rooms. There's actually one I've been asking them about a lot, and we get to do it this year. Uh, they haven't announced it yet, but I'm so excited. I'm oh. really when they told me, I was like, finally, yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> let's get oh the man some alcohol. <laughs> 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 tell us. Is it is it American Werewolf in Paris? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good joke. <laughs> I actually didn't mind that one. <laughs> that's not acceptable. <laughs> well, let's talk about your journey to making this movie, Primal Rage. Let's talk about how long has this idea been in your head? The movie side of things, again, having grown up with thriller and all these kind of influential movies and reading these books and stories and all the Fangoria days and all that, you know, um, which, you know, again, mostly in the eighties, yeah. you kept reading these stories about John Landis. So oh, I, I found, I had this idea and I found this kid to do the effects or James Cameron ended up finding this Stan Winston guy to do these terminators. And you kind of kept reading these stories about these opportunities. These, uh, these effects guys were getting, which, Granted, they were brilliant effects guys. And I just was like, well, I hope that happens to me one day. I just need to meet the right person for the right opportunity for the right job and hope it clicks. And after about 10 years of trudging through the the mud, I realized, yeah, I don't know. And, and, the, and the, the way the horizon was with film and everything, it was very different by the time I got into it anyway. Mm. You know, it, you know, the 80s had come and gone and, and digital world had entered. And, you know, a lot of what great practical special effects has kind of, you know, vanished as far as these historic movies. So it kind of got to the point where I'm like, I think I just got to figure this out myself. Like, I want to do this myself. And it was very easy to just say, you know, no one's really gone for it in a big way with, with Bigfoot. And, uh, you know, having loved Rick Baker's work and special effects in general with Harry and the Hendersons and that kind of thing, that's kind of the pinnacle of Bigfoot monster suits. And as far as the high profile Bigfoot movies, I thought, well, I know I, I don't have that budget. I don't know if I can get that big, but at least try to do something in that quality. But you know, make them the, the scary mean guy a la Predator. So I just started on the journey with just, okay, I got to do this myself. It's going to take some time. Let me just challenge myself to see if I can just make a Bigfoot suit. So I I just started by making the suit first before wow. I really had the story. And I knew, you know, I wanted to do a certain type, type of design that was maybe a little different. So I started with the head. The journey just to, before starting, I realized, okay, I got to get a really tall guy <laughs> who's willing and acceptable to be tortured. <laughs> and I looked around all the rooms and I was in and I realized... That's you. <laughs> yeah. I'm the most willing and available and tolerant person uh, I know. 
know. So that I, or puddles. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So I bit the bullet and I was like, dang, I think I got to make this on myself. And I had played some creatures through the years on some small bits here and there. And I, I actually played a predator in the teaser trailer for AVP. I got to oh, wear cool. a suit. Wow. So, nice. so, so I knew how uncomfortable and crappy it was. In other words, I didn't want to do it. But uh, so I was like, okay, I'll be here when I'm done, of course. So I decided to start building things on myself. So again, I started with the head and another year goes by and I had found time and money to do the hands and make the molds for the hands, you know, and just kind of squeeze it in between all the jobs to just, you know, earn a living. And after a good four or five years, I think I finally finished the suit, a, f- a complete suit. Through that time, just through a whole bunch of notes, kind of developed the whole story to, to do a movie. I had just tons of time to just think of everything. And then by the time I finished the suit, it got to, okay, well, let me see if the suit works. And like, let's see what it's really like. And you know, I've been on a lot of sets, but it's tricky when I was wearing it and then uh, shooting it and then knowing what I would do, you know, how everything would just look visually. We filmed tests for a couple of days and edited stuff together. I was like, oh, I was pretty happy with it and the environment and everything. Okay. Now I got to make a movie. Dang, now I got to make the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I had worked with Jay Lee. He directed Zombie Strippers and a couple other movies. And he's a fantastic guy. He is the kindest guy, humble. And he's really good with a camera. And he's really trustworthy. And he's somebody, he's one of those key people I had met through my probably 10 years at that point that I could kind of go to. So I kind of went to Jay and said, he had shot the test, but so he knew I had the monster stuff. And gave him all my story notes was it was like condensed to like 12 pages of a breakdown and then he took that and and drafted it into a screenplay the irony is is so he took it and then he added his his stuff to it too and i remember reading the screenplay for the first time i was like wait a minute now i gotta make all this right (laughs) (laughs) i regret regret doing it i was like this is gonna take another two years to make more stuff for this so it actually added another couple years because it just takes so much you know, time. And of course, you know, it's to self-finance. So I can only do so much at so much time. And then you only have so much time when you're not working. So we would just, I would work every free time I had building, you know, a second suit. And then we had to do all our kills and fake heads for the people. And that took another couple of years and then finally got to the point where I could start shooting. So it was um, a really long journey. Wow. wow. So how, how many years would you say all in? So right now what's finally coming out, I finished it last year, but it was uh, about 10 years. Wow. So how does that feel now that it's done? It's weird because I yeah. don't have anything to do. <laughs> Part two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, now you get to go around and talk about it, obviously, and, and see it with different audiences, which has probably been, that must be a really cool experience. Yeah, it, it's very surreal. It's weird that it is done because, again, like you work on something for a decade. It's just weird to think, like, I still feel like there's something I got to do for it. Sure. I mean, obviously promote it. But uh, yeah, just to see people, you know, I know there are certain beats in there where I knew the film would get the reaction that it, it does when it when it does and it works. So that's it's, it's, of course, rewarding. And, you know, the key, which is really tricky and what I'm very proud of with this film, and that's me being an effects guy, is that, you know, everyone kind of has a thing for genres, certain styles of films, you know, horror films have their own style and genres, subgenres It's just kind of approaching it like those movies I grew up with where practical effects is if we can't do it, then we just won't do it. 
if it can't be done or couldn't be done, you know, we're not going to just rely on a computer or something else to help us. It's like, I'm just going to approach it from the mind frame of the people of the movies, you know, that I grew up with. Cause that's what they had. So I love it. Granted, I still have, there's like 70 or 80 amazing vi- digital shots in there. Visual there effects. Are. Honestly, I was going to say, yeah, I never would have known. Yeah. Yeah. known. We saw the movie. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's freaking incredible. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It really is like, <laughs> and it feels handmade. It feels like yep. those handmade eighties films. Yep. It really, yeah you nailed it that was just it giving it that texture you know for me the theory with jaws the shark didn't work so what do we do well we're just going to show a fin and then or let john williams do the jaws and everyone says had that shark worked and they didn't have (laughs) to resort on those that movie might be only half as good as it is to this day (laughs) maybe it wouldn't be that good at all (laughs) it's true because I think the original storyboards for Jaws, that and when she swims in that water, the shark comes out full blast. You see the head, the whole thing, and like you see everything in that opening scene. And who knows what that could have been? But, <laughs> yeah. but and that's hard because it's tricky to hide. And it's like, well, okay, the creature walks up in the shot. Well, how do we not show it? But it does it. So it makes you think. You know, the limitations make you think a little harder and make things more creative. And I, we all like horror movies. I think that's what really makes them hold up and look really good it's the what you don't see and the creativeness that the creativeness that goes into it to to not show it to you but show it to you what made all right. those movies great is that the innovation required to right. get over these obstacles at the time and right. the limitations that they were faced with made accidentally these brilliant movies that yep. we all love and everybody's right. still trying to recreate that magic in yeah. a bottle and i'll tell you man uh, kudos to you because i was afraid that this thing was going to be hidden this creature would only come out at night or something and it's like nope you bring it out right in the daylight and i'm like that's awesome man <laughs> and it's a suit which is i mean it's you don't yeah. see that much anymore well and i hate when i don't see it you know yeah. what i mean right yeah. right we, we couldn't afford lights <laughs> 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 the practicality of having a truck and a generator at night in the forest with lights. Nope, that was out. So, I mean, I was aware of that. Scotty Lacan is like, we're not going to be able to do anything in the dark. So we're going to write this movie not in the dark. <laughs> That's awesome. Your co-writer was also the DP and the editor? Yes. So Jay, brilliant. He, you know, he's a director in his own right and writer and he was the dp and the editor so he was definitely my right hand man and again it's something i had done effects for him on you know half a dozen projects like three features four features maybe i just knew that that was somebody i could go to and have a really good rapport with and he was really patient with me when he was a director doing effects and he really understood that practical effects you know and you're doing blood and guts and blowing things up you know it doesn't happen the first time and you got to Let's do it again. Let's do it again. And let's change the camera angle. And you got to work with it. Sometimes it takes 12 times. And right. he was like, let's do it 13 times. And he was that he had that right mentality nice. for the project. Nice. So, and he was just very patient and humble and he absolutely respects the craft. And I mean, he's hilarious because you know, something's good when he's on camera and he's a very quiet guy and he gets this like smirky smile. When <laughs> violence or gore or so I just have to look at his face. I go, we're doing well. We're doing well. <laughs> so yeah, he was fantastic to where, you know, I play the creature. So I'm in the mask, you know, talking. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> And I got to stop and then walk around and then look at camera and he'd do playback and I was like, oh man, I screwed up that. Okay, let me do this. And you know, he'd have to show me and it is an interesting process. But yeah, without a doubt, Jay Lee is a huge contributor to the whole process. Nice. Sounds like the perfect partner. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. 
How much of the suit was animatronic? How did that work? Did you have to do separate suits for parts where he'd open his mouth and things like that? How yeah, that- yeah. As you know, he started writing the story. He wanted it to be a little more than less. We had, uh, I think I went up to four heads. I made one head that did one thing, which <laughs> if you saw the movie, you probably know what it is. I don't oh, want to reveal it, but yeah, we just, yeah, yeah. I made a whole damn head to do this one thing that has gotten a fun reaction from people. It's like, oh, it, it does that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it was great. Um, and then uh, one that was a full animatronic built much like Harry and the Hendersons or the Predator where it involves still my eyes with contact lenses, but then servo motors operated all the lips and eyebrows and cheeks. And then I could activate the, the jaw itself. So it was very, you know, user performer friendly, but yeah. then I still had a crew of three people with radio controls mm. tracking the head. And then I had another person with a drool pump behind and then to simulate i wanted the forest to look pretty cold there's scenes where you see him breathing you see like breath coming out of his mouth and i didn't want to do it digitally so i had another person behind in certain shots where they took canned air and flipped it upside down in a tube oh, where you wow. get and you flip canned air upside down you get the <laughs> yeah, the condensation showing right. wow. i'm sure there's a technical name for it <laughs> right probably co2 or <laughs> <laughs> cool breath yeah, cool. <laughs> that's a great work i've never heard of that technique before that's so brilliant i know it's been used i'm sure on a lot of monsters but uh it was probably terrible to breathe in and it was right there in front of my mouth but but it was practical and looked cool so i there was you know my crew went maybe up to nine so at moments there was like hey we just get our grip uh make the lips move and do that and then they were just doing the controls because it took five people to operate the thing in a couple key scenes so where all the heads and the the costumes now like do you have them like oh yeah they got all washed off and cleaned of blood and dirt and muck and they're nicely stowed away in my studio and i'm actually getting ready to take a couple of them and make them into displays for conventions once the movie's out i'll, I'll reveal everything and yeah, it's oh, so nice. great yeah it's cool. definitely for anyone who hasn't seen it at the, the few screenings it's had so far it's a Bigfoot unlike we've ever seen before. Yeah. I guarantee you that, which is amazing. Yeah. It takes Bigfoot up a level. It, yeah, it certainly does. <laughs> it certainly does. The film, it looks beautiful. I mean, the aerial shots of the woods and everything. Where was that filmed and what did you shoot that with? So, yeah, we shot where Bigfoot is. And that was another point of having the control of doing my own film is I didn't want to go into LA woods. I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to go to big bear. You see all those movies and they kind of have that look. We went to the redwoods up in Northern California and shot in the redwood forest oh, where nice. all the Bigfoot sightings are. Mm-hmm. Right. We shot in areas where they did return of the Jedi and some of the forest and ET. Oh, and, yeah. uh, especially when you're in there, when it's starting to get dark, you can see how people start seeing things and <laughs> the trees are so big and the shadows and the movement. Uh, it's just a phenomenal place. I'm surprised more productions don't shoot there. I mean, it is kind of a pain in the butt, but, uh, to get there and get all your stuff there, but it was, uh, just an amazing backdrop. So that's to its benefit for sure is visually. And then we shot, that was the other great thing. You know, the one of the Jay, uh, Jay's movies he had shot before called Alice Kills, he had shot on a 5D. I think he had four or five lenses, and I remember seeing it. And I d- had very little to do with the makeup, but I remember him showing me his first cut and just was blown away with how nice it looked. And I was like, we're just going to shoot on a 5D. Wow! And we had five lenses. They're all nice, you know, nice uh, prime lenses. Nice. And we did aspect ratio change, so it went to 235, so it looked really nice and wide and right. cinematic like yeah. a film. Yeah. And then we fixed things with post. Uh, Jay added a film grain finish to the film. So we did a lot of textural things to give it more texture, to make it feel more filmy and gritty and cinematic and not, you know, super high end 
you know, crystal clear digital camera. Right. right. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, it looks great. It looks yeah. really beautiful. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, just a little handheld camera. That's crazy. <laughs> that is. And wild. no lights. No. We, <laughs> sunlight. Mostly, yeah. 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 We had like two little pan lights. Oh, okay. To just do a couple little fill in things sure. here and there. But yeah. Wow. How do you go up with the sound? So for like the, for Bigfoot. So what was also fantastic, so, you you know, we finished the film and of course, audio, the music and sound is integral to any horror movie. Without, if those aren't good, your horror movie's not good. <laughs> right, right. So I lucked out too. I, you know, we just searched around. I found a great post-production sound place that did all the audio and that was a whole nother thing where that was a whole nother beast in itself to where I basically gave him a lot of reference, just animal references. I caught a hint of like a lion roar. It probably was a lion. Uh, <laughs> probably a bunch of stuff stacked on top of each other. Right? Yeah, no, I found we found um, a couple sounds of probably lions and and cats that were in cages. I think in like a enclosed environment, so you got a good reverb to it. So I I wanted it to sound more natural versus synthetic, kind of made up mm, monster right. noises. That was huge, and then I really scored fantastically well with the composer who's. Kerry Torgerson, and that was a really lucky thing to get him too. He did a fantastic job with very limited resources. Oh yeah, the yeah. music's amazing. Yeah, it's great. It's really got a tribal drum sort of sound, and just big and boomy too. Yeah, yeah. the boomy horn section. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's great, really yeah. really cool. I gotta ask you oh, a yeah. controversial question though. What are your thoughts on the 1967 uh, Patterson Gimlin film? <laughs> um, meaning is it real yes or why well, I, I definitely think it was a stage thing I, I don't believe him what's your but. professional take on that suit <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well it was from really far away it was really shaky and it was like 16 8 millimeter or whatever so whoever did that did a great job and here we are still talking about that to this day I think it's a phenomenal concept but it is not real. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird that Patterson till the day he died says that he, it was real. He swears, he swears it's real. And I've heard a couple stories. I've heard a couple stories from some high profile people that have said, that have mentioned a couple people that were involved with that, whether it's real or not, I don't know, but it, it's a possibility. Are you like in the Bigfoot community now? Are you like people coming up to you? They're, they're dragging you into it. <laughs> That's a really good question. Uh, I'm afraid of that. <laughs> I, you know, I of course did some research, but the Bigfoot community is hardcore. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I've had some reach out to me that have been really positive about what they've seen and suggest said that it looks just like the one they've seen and so forth. That's wow. scary. And then... <laughs> That's not good news, everybody. <laughs> and then the flip side is is just in the fact that, yes, it's a horror movie and this Bigfoot is not very nice at all. I've, there's a lot of people that have reached out to express their thoughts and tell me how, how wrong I am with this Bigfoot creation. So, <laughs> and, you know, and here's here's how I look at it is like with, okay, if Bigfoot exists and there's a bunch of them, they're just like people. There's probably some good ones and there might be a bad one. This is the bad one. Look at it. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of good ones. This one is just very bad. <laughs> I'm wondering if there's anyone in the woods who happened to be just camping while they were filming the test footage of him in the suit or something. That maybe that's that'll what come happened, out, right? Maybe. <laughs> it actually behind the scenes footage. It, yeah, it did. There, there was two. See, we did a, one when we were actually filming, and then one with the test because we were just rogue testing. I actually ducked behind some stuff, and it was like everybody looked like you're taking pictures of 
the birds. And so I was hiding in there and nobody did notice. But then when we were shooting one sequence, real briefly, I can't say it, but you guys saw it. There's a scene where he's in a really cool position. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, he yeah. had hikers yeah. coming, just rogue hikers coming by. <laughs> and we had game plans for this. So everyone was like, just, and if you know my cast, the one male, he didn't have a shirt for a sequence yeah, there. So yeah. we're like, just pose and we'll take pictures of you. <laughs> so we're just gonna turn like we're doing like some weird model shoot. <laughs> Meanwhile, the, the creature's in this spot and they just, they didn't know. So again, it's a testament to if wow. he is real and he kind of does these things, you could see how maybe, you know, he can get away with it. <laughs> right. That shot, if this is the same shot I'm thinking, it reminded me, it spills straight out of Predator. Yeah, yes. it's very it's predator shot. Yes. Very, yeah. very. I, the shot, I love that shot so yeah. much. Yeah, it was, it was so beautiful. It was definitely like bucket list of 10. It was up there in the high, like we're getting this shot. Yeah. That caught me off guard. As soon as he moved his arms, I was like, oh. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I, you know, it definitely went out of my way, which we should, to give little bits to make you think, oh, that, okay, something like that could do that. Or, you know, it would give reason to how people could think they're yeah. seeing things or if they are real, how they can get away with not being seen. Well, that was night, like the, the whole first half of the movie feels like that, that sets up that whole thing. Yes. And, you know, it's that slow burn and you feel that the tension was just really, it had that Jaws feeling, but the tension was just building and building and building. Great. Yep. That, I mean, it's by design. I'm, I'm glad it worked. Um, totally. Again, you, it's risky now more than ever with people's attention spans. That was a big thing I had with Jay was, do we just open the movie up with some sort of action sequence or scene or just something to really kind of get people, okay, this is what we're in for. But I opted to just go, you know what, we're just going to take a while and do what they did in the olden days. <laughs> yeah. The first gruesome scene, I guess you should say, was yeah. pretty cool, man. Those effects. Because, you know, you, you, see, you see that over and over in movies, but this one effect, I was like, oh, and you get a close-up and you're like, oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> now, again, we had the checklist, okay, kill one, kill two, and, then, you know, I knew what I wanted to do and it's strategically laid out that way. And, yeah, I mean, I think everyone in film, I guess, in, has been killed every way possible at this point. <laughs> right. So, you know, a lot of them just become homages and then try to give it a little twist or a turn that you maybe haven't seen. Oh yeah. There's a couple of things that were just so brutal. I mean, in a beautiful way. <laughs> <laughs> I but, thought, I thought one thing that, that was riveting too. monsters aside, the human monsters in this movie, yeah. the tension there deliverance made it had me glued to the screen. Yeah, really, you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, it, that, totally it really was compelling. It, it totally Meanwhile, did. there's this other thing burning in the exactly. background. When that's, so you know, like, all these things are in motion and yeah. it's just like, when's it going to... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. Absolutely loved yeah, it. Yeah, that was, you know, you do enough research on horror films, the good ones. I looked at it as you got to kind of pluck the monster out of it mm -hmm. and see if the movie works. Like, all the really great monster horror movies kind of work if you kind of take just take the the monster right out of it this you know with jaws those the human characters just work so well again you know yeah, yeah. The, well, you very rarely see yeah. jaws in the first jaws <laughs> it's, funny, it's like with those movies too as the sequels progress they forget that oh like well, the jason yeah. movies <laughs> yeah, exactly. like the, the jason movies become all jason all the time yeah. and they stop being effective pretty quickly it's like the first one is the groundwork and i guess if it works then the rules are kind of established and at that point yeah you just want to see chucky do his thing and freddie you know it's yeah. like it, it, i mean and I well, i'm okay that. with chucky okay <laughs> so more, more chucky's okay so jason does his thing <laughs> <laughs> i had read about this and i wanted to clear 
clarify it with you. Working on, you know, this basically an indie budget, self-funded. And there was some pretty crazy stunt work going on. But I heard that Andrew and Casey, the two leads, actually didn't have stunt doubles. And they're swimming in white water and there's there's some crazy stuff happening. Yeah, that's true. I met both of them at Universal Studios doing our theme park stuff. And... They're both very physical performers, theater performers. AJ does stilt walking and stunt stuff on his own. He's a very physical performer, as well as Casey. I knew what I was looking for, and I had to get the right physical people. Even the, the movie doesn't look quite as cold as it was, but it was actually cold. And if you know the circumstances they're in, they were very uncomfortable. So I needed really physical people. And uh, yeah, that was my first thing uh, was, hey, how do you guys feel about water? (laughs) And and falling in, you know, that was knowing who I was dealing with. You know, most of the cast I'd actually known through years, especially with some of the guys that get killed, knowing I had to build all their stuff like a year in advance because it took so long to build it all. (laughs) These are all guys, I actors that I had known, told them the story, told them the idea. They saw what I had built. They like, this guy's committed. Okay, I'm going to build this thing on you you need to show up a year from now you know and <laughs> right and so pretty most of the the cast was was people i knew and so yeah they man they were amazing they did all their own stunts they yeah they make the creature look really good by you know <sighs> yeah. it's like with like rocky or any like boxing or hits or anything it's not the guy throwing the punch it's the one taking it mm, yeah, you right. know that sells it yeah and that's kind of the category they fall into so yeah they they, they did a fall and jump into rapids and then you know all their own stunt work in the woods i had time so i scouted all different locations up in the northern california and found a very specific area for them to go in the water that had been tested a whole bunch i had a a kayaking crew and a raft safety crew and a rescue crew we were there in february so it was like their off season anyway it wasn't like it was a busy time so they were like help out on a movie and so i got a really great rate with them so i had all the you know cautionary stuff covered which is still doesn't matter. Yeah, they went in that cold water. And then some of it we shot in a pool, which you'd probably never know. No. And then no. Um, we did another bit in another piece of wa- you know, river where Jay and I went into the water and it, it was cold. Well, yeah, I was going to ask, is there anything as far as the shoot, dangerous to shoot even in a situation like that? The, the water was the most dangerous thing, yeah. without a doubt. And yeah, I know specifically Casey. She was like, and we're done with the water, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember because we came back the next year to finish shooting. I was like, I just need these two more shots, but we'll do it in a pool. So we're not done with the water, right? Is what she said. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but we'll do it in a pool. <laughs> we'll even do it in your pool. <laughs> so what's next for the promotion of the movie and everything? It's going to be everywhere May 1st. And that's VOD hmm. May 1st. And then we have a 60 day window after that to where it's Blu-ray, DVD, Redbox, that, that, that kind of avenue. And then from there, I'm not sure the amount of time they'll want to have go by before we'll hit TV platforms, whether it's Netflix or an HBO or sci-fi or TV or or whatnot. It's kind of running the typical course. But it's great. Very it's cool. You know, what's just so fascinating is that, you, do, you know, the, the most rewarding part was to do this personal little project and to accumulate such an amazing crew of people and talent and then have 10 years go by and then finish it and then get this opportunity to get distribution and have it play in, in over hundreds of theaters for this little film. You know, it's very, 
very, very rare that something like that happened. So that's been the most probably rewarding part. It was awesome. You know, like most of the casts were from Universal. So we went for the premiere to City Walk, Universal oh, City Walk. Oh, nice. And we all saw it at the place pretty much where we all met. So it was pretty cool. It was, it was a great reward. Wow. Yeah, so awesome. I would imagine that comes with a fair amount of uh, addiction, right? You want to do it again, I would assume. Oh, with it is so addicting. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you finish shooting and then you start seeing stuff, you're just like, well, again, having started with effects and listening to directors and other people's ideas. And so we have $10 and we want to, you know, blow up this guy and blow up that guy and the thing <laughs> turns over and the monster turns into another monster. And you know, here are all these unrealistic perspectives. <laughs> it's like, and you have $10 for all this? <laughs> you know, it's so addicting to, you know, to be in charge and, you know, know the effect side of it to go, oh, I just, how do I go back? I want I, I just gotta keep. I could keep doing this, so uh, I'm just kind of twiddling, twisting my fingers around, just hoping, you know, seeing what happens with this and what the response is. And yeah, what opportunities it brings and yes. what world world it opens. It's amazing. See if I've earned an, another chance. Hopefully, under a better, you know, financial terms. Right, right. <laughs> I guarantee. Once more people see this movie, man. Yeah, uh, yeah. People yeah, have sure. to see this movie, man. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's really. I'm watching it tonight. Going back to your uh, creature monster design. Looking back from the days you started to today, how has your creative process evolved? Like, are you, are you now using 3D printing, for example, or, you know, or computer graphics to design specific sculptures, ideas and stuff? Or is it still hands-on old school? For me, it's pretty still old school. Really? Um, I cut to the chase and I just like to do it three-dimensionally. I'll just sculpt something small. I, I feel like I've just sculpt, I've done things three-dimensionally so much that I'm quicker now sculpting than even drawing, doing a nice drawing. Wow. I could rough something out in clay. And that's what I did for this creature is I did about 10 really quick. I just spent two, I gave myself two hours to do a head and I go in a dark room and turn on a light and I roughed out, here's this attempt at a Bigfoot and I had accumulated 10 of them and just started to show them to everybody I knew. And I said, here's the thing. He's got to be smart, stealthy, lethal, but then could still do some serious damage. Like to look at him, you're, you're dead. Right. And I basically had a lot of people give me input on these 10 quick sketches of, in clay. And I kind of got it narrowed down to two and then I just re-sculpted it. So it was, again, just being able to show people in their face versus, a, you know, an elaborate Photoshopped image. Which again, that's a really big thing now in the business is doing really great illustrations and zebra three even three-dimensionally in computer but a lot of time it doesn't translate into film and that's again where you're losing that texture where it can look great as a painting right but it doesn't work as a especially a practical effect yeah. a creature walking around in the woods look you know you can pose it in a dynamic pose that probably a performer couldn't do or, or whatnot. So I really think that's what the difference is on certain types of films. You know, if, if there's so many now and they're just, there's so many, again, I just call it kind of subgenres or categories a film would fall into. And so my approach has always been just traditional, like this is, we make it practical. So let's design it practical. Oh, cool. And I've been given a lot of uh, digital artwork, you know, to kind of translate. And then there's a lot that gets lost in translation because yeah. it's like, well, 
you know, someone's eyes are there. They're yeah. not as wide or narrow as you have it in your drawing. Right. So again, it's just, it's really, it's, it's a mind frame. I am sure in the eighties it was crazy because then it was such a big thing. It was a big money-making thing. And you hear the stories of writers and directors and studios asking people to do ridiculous stuff. And it's like, we can't do that. It's a rubber this and a rubber, you know, but yeah. they were really pushed to their limits. And now it's, um, you know, just do it like this. And if you can't, then we'll just, we'll do it on computer. And again, it's that mind frame. So yeah, again, just getting back to design, I, I probably 99 times out of a hundred, I'll just go into sculpting it. <laughs> Why do you think that the mind frame has become so much of that? Anyone who sees, you know, Star Wars or Back to the Future movies that required miniatures and models and people in suits and things like that. I don't know anyone who says that it didn't look better than what CGI looks like, but is turning out to be the trend. It, Why do you think that is? Is it cheaper? It, is it what is it's it? It's planning and patience, just preparing. It'd be like... Uh, preparing your taxes eight months in advance no one does that no one wants to but you, you would need to right it's like it's kind of that meant again it's a mentality so there's choices there's a there's a alternative option i think and it's always in the back of your head well we don't have we'll fix it later or we'll just deal with that later because it does cost a lot of time and it t it's time and money when you're on set and you got these big movies with 100 people crew or more and every hour is costing how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars and you, there's one guy some effects guy uh can we do that again it's gonna take me 30 <laughs> more minutes to reset that we don't have 30 minutes we're just gonna you know wow. it's a lot of money and, yeah. and, it, and it's it's really time and money it's designing things in a way you know hopefully if the director's on board maybe it's a 10 person crew and it's done after or later and inserts and stuff, which they did back then too. Like, you know, the thing, which is a great example, yeah. you know, they do, yeah. you know, insert shots and pickups or gremlins. Yeah. Right. right. They had yeah. like two months after they shot the movie of, okay, now we're going to do gremlins. And it was two months of shooting gremlins. It's just uncomfortable. Can you imagine being upside down and backwards and your hands everywhere and rods and strings? And it's just, it's not... It just takes a lot of people to be uncomfortable. Now it's just easy to sit in a chair and work on it, you know, work on a computer. So I get that. It's it's easier. And, it, it, and in fact, maybe that seems more practical, but you're losing that textural quality yeah, that the that human eye picks up. Yeah, exactly. Right? It can't yeah. be recreated, right? Yeah. You lose the yeah. charm. It, it's really, yeah. it's really fascinating. We, we could talk about that for hours. Yeah. But it, it's a, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a oxymoron almost. And you know, film is technology and science and then we're doing art, right? And then with practical effects, it's mostly fine art, you know, sculpting and painting and then integrating chemicals and materials. But, uh, it's a weird juxtaposition of art, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, on the business side, it seems like an illusion that you save money on the back end because you just, you're just pushing that cost to later in the well, chain. E exactly. And then that goes with um, budgeting and financing and then money up front. You know, I think a lot of these films, the big ones, the small ones, it's like, well, you know, if your budget's a million dollars and you have a ton of monsters and you're going to spend a hundred thousand dollars, but you got to spend it now. It's scary to go. We just lost a 10% of our budget. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if you're going to spend it and do it right, you're going to ask a guy like me to spend three months on it. Now they're just twiddling their thumbs going, well, we just lost a lot of money right away. And now we got to wait three months before we even start. So again, it's just that mind frame, that mentality. Right, right. Back then they could go, well, what are you going to do? So when they did Gremlins 2, you know, Rick Baker said he had over a year, a year and a half to build all the things they wanted. And that director had done Gremlins 1. He's like, well, I want all this stuff. And if we don't have it, we don't have it. It wasn't a computer to go to. So, right. 
you know, you just had that time. And so it's kind of money. You're just, if it's money loaned. So now you have interest rates and all that. And, and so you're just sitting on, you know, it's just, it just makes the nerves get. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so knowing the movie's done and you've seen a rough edit and you're like, oh, we're almost there. But, 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 but then you just start spending money really quickly at the end. So it's like, save it, save it, save it, save it. And again, now you've sacrificed the, the art of it, right. the look, yeah. the texture, whatever you want to, you know, call it. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Rick Baker, you know, other people who've influenced you. I'm curious. I know in other sort of cinematic disciplines, people can like behind the scenes names that not a lot of people know but people within that discipline can recognize their work. When you see creature effects, practical effects done by someone else, can you tell? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah we, we call it style. Mm. So much like you would know a Tim Burton movie mm. from Spielberg movie and certain P- Guillermo movie mm. within the creature community. So like we were all at Monster Palooza this last weekend. Yeah. <laughs> so all the creature designers, I know you could just see, oh, they're going to go, I know who this is. I know who, you just at a glance, just yeah. it's like a style and oh, it's, a, it's like any art, you know, it's again, that fine art. So there's dozens of people you could just show me and go like just super randomly and go, oh, I think I know who did that and guess. And usually you're right. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> that is astounding. Yeah, it's so a cool. monster style. Right? Yeah. <laughs> is there something that you've made that's just stood out to you, like that your your pride and joy, and oh. that you didn't want to get rid of, and that you were bummed that you had to sell? Well, it's this Bigfoot, and I'm not yeah. selling him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not for sale. It's a part of you. <laughs> Today yeah. is this your absolute favorite creation? Oh, without a doubt. Getting back to where I was, it was like it, I try to create the dream scenario for the optimal job. You know, I got to design and I ultimately got to play the monster that I was hoping somebody would come in for, you know, to me to make. And I got, I got as much time as I wanted and I had all the control and I got to shoot it the way I wanted to. And, you know, I got to come back and reshoot things the way I wanted to. I got to edit it and have total control of this monster. So without a doubt, the the creature in this in primal rage is the thing I'm most proud of. And, if you guys didn't like the monster or the effects, and I failed because that is that's my job. <laughs> so, but yeah, he's that's my baby for sure. It's a fantastic creature, man. Yeah, fantastic yeah, you baby. succeeded wildly, <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard because you know I had to cut stuff, you know, and it's uh. like, oh, okay. <laughs> we'll cut that out. Uh, what goes okay. on the Blu-ray, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> Pat, thank you so much, man, for coming here today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. People around Falk, Arkansas, say they have seen such a creature nearly 250 times since 1954. And that this creature, whatever it is, emits one of the most terrifying sounds ever recorded. This was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode number 15. Special thanks to our guest, Patrick McGee. Follow him on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at McGee Effects, and do not miss his film, Primal Rage, available on demand in iTunes May 1st. It means so much to us if you get a sec to head to iTunes, rate and write a quick review for this show. If you've already gone and done that, thank you so much. It really helps the show grow, increases our visibility, and we can't tell you how much we appreciate that support. Over to Insta, Sweet Screams, <laughs> The Sweet Bree 13, Pathy Nirvana, Carrie Nickerson, John Schnitz, 
Monster and Haunters, the movie. By the way, get that, watch that, it rules. Hit up Netflix. Thanks for keeping the conversation going, and thank you for listening and being such an important part of the show and our Boo Crew family. Trevor for the Boo Crew saying, see you on the other side. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shand, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation. Fuck a duck.